Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. All right, Matthew 11. If you have a Bible, go to Matthew 11. I'm going to read this passage. Um, this is an invitation to following Jesus. It is uh, a description of what discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus looks like. So I'm going to start here, and then we'll talk about it um, a little more, and uh, we'll just go from there. So Matthew 28, Matthew 11, 28. <clears throat> I'll get it right. And if I just keep messing up, just podcast the last service. Um, Come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a message translation of this very same text. I want to read this to you. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. It's powerful, huh? Can I get an amen on this text right now in this Christmas season? Where are you guys at? I mean, I'm reading this, and I'm like, this is what apprenticeship to Jesus is supposed to look like? What? Like easy and light, unforced rhythms of grace? That's a Hallmark card. Not life with Jesus. I've been a vocational pastor. I've been getting a paycheck from a church since I was 22 years old, 11 years. And ministry does not look like this. All of us are called into ministry as followers of Jesus. And I just wonder how many of you are burned out, exhausted from Christmas season, let alone life? Anyone? No, nobody wants to talk. We're going to need to get a little more comfortable. We're getting some head nods, but let's just get a little more free with the hands. I'm not speaking from a place of authority today. I'm speaking from a place of longing. Because I read this text, and it's something that I've shared with you over the last couple of weeks. That I, I, I read this, recover your life, unforced rhythms of grace, live freely and lightly. And I'm like, sign me up. Sign me up, Lord. Because this hasn't been my journey with the Lord. And that's for lots of reasons, and I've shared some of it. But just in a nutshell, for me, I've struggled with being a workaholic, being burnt out. I've had some major crashes in my life where I was seriously ill from working too much and carrying the burden that was not mine to carry, trying to make everyone happy with me, doing everything for everyone else, not caring for my own soul, and losing much of who I was in the midst of doing what Jesus called me to do. You like that? It's the danger of pastors and pastoral leadership is um, lots of studies have shown that pastors and doctors and lawyers are the most stressed out, which is funny to me because Jesus says here that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This morning, I simply want to teach from a place of, of um, longing and brokenness as I'm discovering this and stumbling forward with you 
Because I think that this is um, a serious subject to discuss because it is the great enemy of spiritual life. So today I'm going to talk about the great enemy of spiritual life because we're in this series called Practicing the Way of Jesus. And we have declared over the next season that for us as a community, we are wanting to become a group of people that become apprentices or disciples of Jesus the way it was intended to be in the first century, that we are going to rearrange and reorder our life around three goals, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. This is a massive vision. Would you agree? And that to do that takes all sorts of transformation and change in our individual lives. Would you agree with that? And we've talked about this in, in, in months past, that any change, any inch of transformation in the kingdom is going to be met with opposition from the kingdom of darkness. Do we remember this? Which is why we prepared ourselves with a spiritual warfare um, uh, uh, series to pr prepare us for this series recognizing that the enemy is going to come after us as we make steps towards wholeness, transformation, and life as followers of Jesus. But I have to say, what I realize is that there's actually a sneaky way that the enemy wants to sabotage us. And this is the great threat. It has something to do with us not embodying this particular text and accommodating to culture. Culture... Um, is part of the problem. We are part of the problem. But I want to speak to culture for a moment in regards to wh what we're getting at. So we'll come back to this text in just a second. And then we're going to land with such, such simple practices that you're going to think um, I'm speaking to like second graders. Um, but I feel like in order for us to get this, I need to speak to second graders. Are you guys okay with that? So, um, so stay with me. But the world has been moving so fast, it's frantic, and it, uh, one writer calls it the age of acceleration, that feeling when things take off. We're just in a constant state of acceleration, um, and most of us are just trying to keep up with the world. And um, lots of things uh, have caused this, and I'll just give you a brief history. <clears throat> Ironically, it was the monks who invented the clock in order to organize the monastery life around fixed hours of prayer. But most historians believe that our relationship to time shifted when the first clock in 1370 was erected in Cologne, Germany. And that's when it went from natural time, and our relationship to time was natural based on seasons and light and dark, day and night, to artificial time where we constructed hours nine to five. So we can, all say, we can all just say that sucks. Um, but 1370 was that time. And, uh, and it created this artificial uh, relationship to time and its existence. And then in 1879, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, which killed rest. And uh, people began to work more hours because they could produce artificial light when it was dark outside. And then about a century ago, Technology started to change our relationship to time with, time, with, with so-called labor-saving devices. So technology invented things. So event, I guess in the past, you had to chop wood to get warm. Now you can push a button, and heat comes out of the floor magically. You used to have to uh, walk everywhere or eventually ride animals to get to places that were far, and now we can drive and fly. We used to write with our hands on ink and something called paper. And... Um, and, and then eventually we start typing, but now we just dictate everything to Siri, and she does it for us. Our relationship to technology, or time, has shifted from these labor-saving devices, and what you see is even though we have a microwave, 
a dishwasher, a laundry machine, um, are, we're not actually, we don't actually feel like we have more time. We actually feel like we have less time, even with these labor-saving devices. And it's fascinating because in um, the 60s, there were all sorts of futurists, from scientific uh, sci-fi writers to political theorists that thought um, that by now we would all be working fewer hours. And one famous uh, Senate subcommittee uh, uh, committee in 1967 uh, claimed that by 1985, the average American would work only 22 hours a week and 27 weeks a year, and that the main problem of our future would be too much leisure. But by 1973, and the stats off, it's reversed numbers, but by 1973, leisure time had decreased by 37%, not 73, 37% in, oh, you corrected it, thank you, um, in, in the US alone. And that's 1973, so we just, we fast forward and it's been absolutely insane. During that same period in the 60s, um, uh, we saw the death of Sabbath with one store that decided to go against the grain and open up seven days a week. Can you guess what it was called? 7-Eleven. And slowly but surely, stores began to compete and open on Sundays when at one time in our history, Sundays was closed. It was completely closed for just the church. Everything was shut down. Could you imagine living today where Sunday there were no restaurants, Amazon Prime shut down, <laughs> Facebook was off. I th just think about this, the, the way it's 24-7 all the time. And uh, we were just slowing down our pace of life to enjoy ourselves, each other, and God's creation, and God himself. But all of history has really reached a climax with technology in 2007. Historians and writers and theorists are saying 2007 is as significant of a time as the invention of the Gutenberg printing press. It will be marked as a moment in time where humanity shifted its relationship to technology, and in, one, in 10 years, we have redefined what it means to be human through the invention of the iPhone iPhone was released in 2007, and all of a sudden, you have access to infinity in your pocket. So we all carry this thing around, and we don't think twice about the impact it's having in our lives. And we're talking about culture here, but there are all sorts of studies that are showing this impact that our iPhone, our smartphones are having on our lives. Um, the iPhone, the average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. They are on their phone for 2.5 hours with over 76 sessions on their phone. Okay, calculate this. Another study um, for 35 and under said that the, the numbers of young adults on the iPhone or on their phones were, was five hours a day with 85 sessions. In all the surveys, most people had no idea how much time they actually lost to their phones. Psychologists are now uh, making the point that the vast majority of Americans' relationship to their phones fall under the category of compulsion, that feeling that we have to check that text, that we have to ch click Twitter or look online for that answer on Google. Just Google it or ask Siri. Uh, they say it's not full addiction, but the definition of addiction is, addiction is the relentless pull to a substance or an activity that becomes so compulsive it ultimately interferes with everyday life. Anyone struggling with addiction to their phone? I mean, we don't, let's not talk about serious things here. We're just talking about the, the decay and fracture of society. But that's totally fine. 
um, and the individual addiction, that, that was a little sarcasm, and our individual addiction to something that has become our great threat to spirituality. And it's not just the iPhone. It's all sorts of things associated to the iPhone. And if you don't think you're an addict, I challenge you right now, shut your phone off for 24 hours and see what happens. Just try it. My phone has been acting up for two weeks, and it like shuts down, I can't unlock it, and it, I, like, I try to reset it multiple times. And the first like six times this happened, it created all sorts of stress. I was using my friend's phone to say, Alex, if you need me, text me on this number. It's like, like, really? What's going to happen? Like, I'm at a movie watching Star Wars. It happened during Star Wars, which was a gift from God. And, um, <laughs> but as it was happening and as I was studying this, I was like, this is a great gift. I'm not distracted by the countless ways or the, the million times I'm on my phone. So what does this have to do with being an apprentice? What does living in a culture that has some, something wrong with it, like being overworked, distracted, busy, addicted to our phones, and constantly, constantly in a hurry... What does that have anything to do with apprenticeship to Jesus? Well, if you read the scriptures, and you just look at Jesus' lifestyle and life, what you see is that he was never in a hurry. Jesus was never in a hurry. In fact, there were times where people were trying to hurry him, and he just slowly wanders, and during that urgent crisis, a person literally died. Like, you know, like, you could say, oh, no one's going to die if we, if we slow down. Well, for Jesus, actually, somebody did die. Lazarus died. And then he raised him from the dead, which is kind of cool. But <clears throat> what you see is a slow pace of Jesus' life. Uh, John Orberg, a pastor and writer in Northern California, he was a mentor by Dallas Willard for 20 years. And uh, John Orberg worked at one of the most famous megachurches in the U.S. It's called... Uh, Willow Creek in Chicago. He was the preaching pastor at the time, famous pastor, and he was being discipled, and he told Dallas on the phone, how do I move forward in my discipleship? Something's off. How do I move forward in my discipleship? And John Orberg writes this in a book. He says, after a long pause, and Orberg said with Willard, there was always a long pause. He said this, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Orbrook said, okay, that's great. And he wrote it down. What else? And, another, and then there was another long pause, and Willard said, there is nothing else. I've been meditating on this interaction for a long time. How is it possible there's nothing else? How could Dallas tell this megachurch pastor with leading tens of thousands of people that the, the primary area for him to focus his life is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry, that nothing else is as great of a threat to his spiritual life. If someone t- were to ask you, what's the greatest threat to your spiritual life today in this progressive city of Long Beach, would you say hurry or something else? Something else. But Satan doesn't always show up as a demon with a pitchfork. He shows up as an addiction to the dopamine rush that is your phone, as an addiction to the dopamine rush that is another hour at the office, a commitment on top of commitment, another meeting to make at life speed. Carl Jung says, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. And I think about this, why is this the greatest threat to our, career, our, our pursuit of discipleship to Jesus? Well, look at scripture as an example, Acts. The Spirit of God fills the church. And it grows. Thousands of people show up. 
to it and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they're baptized, and then the church begins to move. And the first thing that happens is the religious establishment tries to stop the new thing of God. So the Sanhedrin court takes John and Peter and says, stop talking about the resurrected Jesus. And they're like, we can't help it. And, they, and then they, they take note that they had been with Jesus and then they eventually like flog them and they rejoice over their sufferings and it just encourages the way versus uh, squishing it. And then the next threat is, is a little worse. It's hypocrisy in the church. Ananias and Sapphira show up saying one thing and doing another and God ends it right there. Read Acts chapter five if you wanna see what happens there. Not a pretty story. But then the next one we often overlook. It's Acts 6. And it says, in those days, the Hellenized Jews were complaining against the Hebraic Jews over the daily distribution of food. They complained among themselves. And so what happens is the disciples who are leading this large community uh, begin to uh, wait on tables, as they say. They begin to serve the homeless. So how cool is this, though? The church is explosive. And it's growing. And one of the things the church does early on is it just, it just says, we're going to take care of the most vulnerable among us. We're going to give daily food to those that don't have access to food. So would you agree that that's a good thing? Okay, I didn't get enough. Yes. Is it good to make sure that everyone has enough food to eat every day? Yes. Good job. Now, I, okay, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thanks for the participation, um, especially the introverts. I saw you come alive on that one. Appreciate you interacting. So they, that's a really good thing. But what, what, what's being threatened is the, the, the leaders of the church are, being, are, are focusing on the administrative tasks of the church and the growth and the busyness that they're neglecting the preaching of the word and prayer. So in the wisdom of the spirit, God says, delegate the burden of what is good to others in the church to carry so that the leaders of the church can focus on a different task that they're gifted and called to. What is that? It's saying yes to really good things when God has asked you to say yes to great things. It's hurry and busyness as the threat to the church. One way you could say is if, if he can't shut you up, if the enemy can't shut you up, the enemy will give you a, a megaphone you will not recognize the limitations that are necessary for your health and obedience to Christ. Because if you follow Jesus in the scriptures, he's in front of the crowds and immediately the next day alone with the Father. And then when it gets so successful, they want to make him king. The thousands are wanting to make him king. He says something like, eat my body and drink my blood. And they're like, what? Peace. And then everyone leaves. In John 6, 66, it says everyone deserted him. And he turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? How can we? You have the words of life. It's a different kind of ministry in our culture of busyness and work and American success. Are you with me? Michael Zigarelli says this. Um, he did a survey from Charleston University School of Business of 20,000 Christians in the U.S. and identified busyness as a major distraction from God. Here's what he's found. Christians, first, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. 
This is what's going on. The threat here is you just keep going and going and going. And in this season of holiday, Christmas, it's a season of burnout and exhaustion. We go into debt to keep up with it. We say yes to all the parties because we don't want to feel left out. We make all sorts of commitments and we don't live with limitations. And what we don't realize is we're doing violence to our souls. Pete Scazzaro calls it the slow down spirituality. That most people, the problem they will face is that they are too busy to live emotionally healthy and spiritually rich lives. Walking with people in our church, I realize I, there are some, some people that have problems. Let's say some people have problems in their marriage. They're too busy in their life to slow down their pace to fix basic problems that will create a platform for health for future. And I see it all the time that we say we don't have time for anything. And, and college students that are saying this to me, I just laugh. It's so funny. It's so cute that you think you have no time, college students. Wait till you become, wait till, just wait. Because <laughs> I used to say it. I used to say it too. And then I realized um, their life gets more complicated. Psychologists are beginning to diagnose something called hurry sickness. Here's the definition, a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. Psychology today defines it as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Can anyone relate? Quick story to show you how bad I am at this. A couple weeks ago, I've been prep, preparing for the sermon, reading about this, practicing disciplines, which are the hardest disciplines to practice. Fasting is easy compared to slowing down. Putting my four-year-old to bed, trying to put my four-year-old to bed. All right? Any, anyone have a couple kids and getting them to bed is literally a nightmare at the end of the day. What you pray for is patience, but what you realize is it's, a, it's actually not a, a gift. It's a fruit that's grown in time. And I, that's what I'm realizing. God, give me patience. He's like, perfect. I'm going to make it impossible for you to put your son to bed. <laughs> what? But I was like, Ezra, you got to hurry and brush your teeth so we can read books. And he's like, why do I have to hurry? Daddy, why do I have to hurry? Oh, I just got hit. And I just got on his level. Like, you don't have to hurry, babe. I'm sorry. Daddy. And daddy's, I'm just hurrying my son all the time. I realize I'm creating this anxious environment because I'm hurry sick. It broke my heart. I'm missing. It's like Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. <laughs> she says her name twice. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed, or only a few things are needed, indeed only one. And what Mary has chosen is better, and it won't be taken from her. And in that narrative, what's so frustrating is Martha is doing what's expected of anyone hosting the Messiah. Preparing the home, entertaining guests, preparing the meal, providing the meal, setting up, cleaning, making it perfect for the one and only Son of God. Can I get an amen? Yes. And Mary sits at his feet. That's a sign of discipleship in the first century. Anyone that sat at a rabbi's feet was seen as a disciple. Women were never allowed to be disciples. And he's saying, I affirm her decision to be a disciple. She's missing the presence of God in all the preparation to serve others in the presence of God. Does it sound like ministry to you? Yes, it's the story of my life. 
And that word changes began to work for me is when I stopped caring about making sure everyone's happy with what it sounds like or how good it is. And then I started enjoying the presence of God for my own sake, which is a discipline. Because I have been taught growing up, success is defined by making everyone else happy and succeeding by being the best at it. At what cost? My soul. Because God cares less about how good the sermon was and more about how I put my son to bed the night before. Seriously. Now this is, this is, I'm going to say this, stay with me. This is anti-American church success definition. Okay? And this is the direction we've been headed with house churches and discipleship because it is, uh, the, the call to follow Jesus is not brothers and sisters, pick up your cross, which are lightly left on the, the room, stacked in neatly orders. They have iPhone charging station and cup holders for you. Um, does that make sense? That's, Okay, let me say it again. It's not convenient to follow Jesus. Nothing about the cross is convenient. It's a death to yourself. And so for, for so many of us, church has been set up as a mousetrap. Look at all these amazing things. We've got stage lights and fog rolling off here. We've got the best baristas in the city serving, and we're going to have this famous funny speaker next week, and it's going to be super convenient. Just show up, see you next week. But that's not the call of the church. The call of the church is, brothers and sisters, pick up your cross and follow me. And the mousetrap is we get people in thinking, oh, it's super easy, when actually Jesus is like, count the cost before you sign up for church. Like he, and then gives stories about, hey, you don't go to war without evaluating whether or not you're going to win the war. You don't build a tower without evaluating you have enough resources to build a tower. What he's saying is you don't just say yes without recognizing he's going to reorder your entire existence. Is that, is that cool? It's less of a, a real cool gift and more of an infection. <laughs> Merry Christmas. So we're going to keep moving. <clears throat> Pastor just said Jesus is like an infection. <laughs> but a good an infection. It's a good one. <laughs> like laughter. Laughter is infectious. Or, or, okay, anyway, so I don't know where I was going. Ruth Haley Barton says this. Here are 10 signs that you're moving too fast in life. Number one is irritability. Let's, let's just do a list. I'm seven for 10, okay, which is not a good thing. It's seven for 10. Irritability, hypersensitivity, restlessness, meaning you can't actually rest when you try. Uh, compulsive overworking, emotional num numbness. Number six, escapist behaviors like binge watching Netflix. Disconnected from our identity and calling, not able to attend to human needs. So that one's like, you know that for your life and health, you need to work out or eat healthy, but you just continue to not do it. Um, eight, not eight, or nine, hoarding energy, and number ten is slippage in our spiritual practices. Anyone moving too fast through life? Yeah. yeah. Anyone feel like the definition of hurry sickness is there? So um, I, I'm just saying that this is the work of the enemy in our life, in the culture. This is the product of culture, not gospel. Jesus says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I believe with all my heart that what this society and culture needs are people that take and embody this text and live it out. It's what Dallas Willard calls the secret of the easy yoke. And it's found in this text, the secret. Everything the world is looking for in finding 
people of peace, becoming a non-anxious presence, becoming unhurried and detached from the things that are attached to you that are causing all sorts of distractions and brokenness and despair. Um, it's found in this text, and here's what Dallas Willard says. We've read this before. I just want to read it again. In this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus in, uh, consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully. So we do those things in the moment while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else does around us, mainly looking like this. That strategy is bound to fail, he says. So in a nutshell, it's if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Because Jesus is a way of life. It's not just a set of ideas, theology, or a set of lists of do's and don'ts, which is ethics. He uses this odd imagery of a yoke, which is, um, uh, as Frederick Dale Bruner says, one of the top scholars of the Gospel of Matthew, he says this, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation. Amen? Not a yoke. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. Man, that hit me so hard. It's so true. We offer, uh, uh, we cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of escape, which is what society and culture offers us, another drink, another vacation, another meal, another post, another dopamine rush, medication if it doesn't work, Instead of escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that, the, that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, will develop us in a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest in the way we have been living life. This is the aha moment for us, brothers and sisters. If you want the life of Jesus, you need to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. That means taking on the yoke of Christ, being connected to Jesus. The image is two oxen carrying a heavy load or a plow. Jesus is saying, come under my yoke and rest under me. Match your lifestyle, your pace of life, your way of life to mine and learn from me. That is the only way to experience the unforced rhythms of grace. It's literally slowing down our lives to recognize that we are moving at too fast of a pace to allow Jesus' life to be grown because we're too busy, we're too connected, and we're not learning to trust him with the outcome of our lives. Because as Bill Doctor, my mentor and other teaching pastor says, nothing important depends on you. Nothing important depends on you. I was reading this book this week, and this pastor, also mentored by Dallas Willard, I keep quoting Dallas, but he's shaped my, my theology of, of discipleship and spiritual formation. Um, this pastor asked Dallas, if you could describe Jesus in one word, what would you say? Paused, and he said, relaxed. Now that frustrates me. <laughs> Compassion, powerful, driven, on a mission. 
And Dallas Willard's observation, if he could describe one word of what Jesus was like, he says, relax. And then the challenge now is to read the scriptures and the gospels and see Jesus' interactions and his characteristic as relaxed. And it's totally changing my view of God and my view of ministry. So if we want to learn the unforced rhythms of grace, we must match our pace to Jesus and find the solution. The solution is not more time. The solution is to slow down your life. Now, this is where it's going to get extremely practical, and I just want you to stay with me because I actually believe if we committed to some of these disciplines, they're not going to be easy at first, and you're going to think, why are you challenging these things? I feel like I'm trying to create and empower margin in the the edges so that we can actually read the words that are on the page. Studies have been done where they've uh, books have been written without any margins, and what you see is people actually read it slower and can't read it um, to its full extent without margins on the page. Is that interesting? So less words, you read faster, and you retain more information than more words without margin. That's just interesting. So here, here's, what I, here's what I got for you. These are some practices that I've, I've started to um, put into my life. I want to remind you that you can't learn how to slow down quickly. Um, <laughs> we call people forward for prayer, and, and that was kind of my prayer, is that people would be gracious to themselves. If, is anyone here wanting to experience the easy yoke of Jesus? Okay, so if that's you, and you recognize that you too are like me, hurry sick, in a hurry, chronically working too much, um, I want to give you some steps to slow down your life. Number one um, is to schedule, schedule your life around meaningful values. This is so important that you ask the question, what do you value, and is it reflected in your schedule? If you were to just examine your life, you might see, actually, I value work more than anything else. I value uh, gaming. I don't know who games, but maybe you game more than anything else. Yeah, some of us do. And I don't mean settlers of Catan. I mean like games. <laughs> uh, uh, so my wife and I have just recently done this. We, we, um, and so for us, it's like for me, time with the Lord. In order for schedule around meaningful values. So for me, I want to have a regular devotion to Jesus, quiet time. So every day I have to wake up early to read the Bible, to pray, to practice silence and solitude, um, and to journal. So I do this every morning. Now I have a six-month-old and a four-year-old, and you know that they don't sleep like normal people. Kids do not sleep like normal. They get up whenever the heck they want, especially a six-month-old. But in order for me to get the time I need, I have to wake up really early. So I hear all the time, I don't have time to read my Bible. Wake up earlier. And then they, they start telling me excuses. I have to work at 6 a.m. And I have to work at 5, and it takes me 30 minutes to get there. I'm like, great. Go to, wake up at 4.45 and get 15 minutes with the Lord. And, but, but what happens is, what you don't realize is, to have a quiet time in the morning affects the time you go to sleep and your commitments at night. So for Alex and I, we just we recognize that we value going to bed at a certain time, having energy with our family, eating a meal together every, every day. We try to eat one meal together at least and all night. We value Sabbath and rest, so we take a day off together, at least one day off, a full day. And if some of you can't do that, try four hours. We'll talk about Sabbath in a second. But you, you have to recognize that um, the system you've created in your, your schedule produces the results you have. So for many of you, it's cutting back on your commitments to other people. That actually, you don't need to have a night out every single night with somebody if you're single. You need to cultivate solitude and silence in a way from, from those people in that community. 
if you don't create rhythms of, of rest and, and slowness, you will never get the things done that need to be done. And the second, with this, if you write the schedule down, commit to it, because what happens is you allow the urgency of the day to dictate what you do. Um, so I encourage a fixed work week. So for those of you that have a lot of freedom to define your schedule, I would say, like, don't have, um, don't do emails every single day. Now, some of you, that's hard, but choose a set time every day to check out your emails. It slows you down. Don't be responsive. This is a whole bunch of details. Um, second is embrace limits. Uh, we are human, therefore we have limitations. We are not, we are half dust and half deity. Spirit and dust. And so we have access to infinity right here on your computer and the internet and your phone. Um, that is not a good thing. There's some great things about it, but that um, unbridled access 24-7 will produce this frantic, accelerated need for connection unless you put limits and disciplines on your smartphone, on your access to uh, media, and all the ways that we're disconnected. Those numbers on, on your phone are, it's fascinating. Isn't it crazy? You're being so influenced by your cell phone, by your smartphone. And I just think we should be more influenced by the Spirit of God and Jesus. Would you agree or, or disagree? Now, this is a great tool to have. It connects us. But I wouldn't let my son use my phone, or you have a phone right now because he's a young person that needs limitations on his development. Now, I think the same is true for all humans. We need limitations on what we have access to. Put up some boundaries. So shut your phone off. That's pretty dramatic. Try shutting your phone off at night. Try uh, fasting social media for a season. I think we should all take a break from social media for a while. Studies are coming out right now that 2017 was the year we recognize the darkness of social media. That the, the smartest people in America graduating Ivy League schools are being hired by tech companies to create advertisements for you and apps that keep you addicted. The smartest minds that we're producing are trying to get you to click on ads and stay addicted to angry birds. It's fracturing. I, I just think there will, there, we, I think this is, gonna, this is a little prophetic or maybe completely crazy. I think we'll look at social media and our use of technology in the future like we look at cigarettes today. Yeah. Going, what were we thinking? So I just, I, I, I'm serious. I feel like we need to challenge it. I'm not saying it's inherently evil. I'm saying put some brakes on it. Pump some brakes. Put some disciplines on it. Take some time fasting. Recognize the impact it's having on your life. Is that cool? If, you, if you're like me and you don't know how much time you're using, there's a great app called Moment. I I, I'm not getting paid for this. It's a free app. <laughs> Download Moment, and it tracks your screen time. And at first, it was like four hours and 50 minutes on my phone. And part of that was reading. I read on Kindle, um, which is me justifying my screen time. Screen time. But recognizing that I'm using that phone that much, and, and it tells you how many times you open it up, it's crazy. Uh, but that will help you just take an inventory. So, so embrace limits. Schedule life around meaningful values. Sabbath, number three. Sabbath is, divine, uh, is designed for rest, play, prayer, and contemplation. Set aside a day a week to just be and not do anything. Turn off your phone, unplug from the internet, sleep as if you can, read your Bible, pray, eat, hang out with friends, go on walks, Play, uh, take a nap, do life-giving things for your soul. This is a Ten Commandment, and it's probably the most revolutionary thing we can do to our uh, consumeristic culture that tells us that you are what you consume and produce. You with me? Number four is simple living. 
Um, the more I'm reading the Gospels, if you're reading along with me, and the more I'm learning about Jesus, the more I'm realizing that Christians have accommodated to culture's consumption. And uh, I just think we need to put some challenges on our, our lifestyle practices of consuming. Not just, just stuff, not just buying things, but our consumption of media and information. And, all. and I just think we need to pull back a little bit, evaluate and pursue some simplicity. And it's going to look different for every person. I'm not saying be a minimalist where you have seven things in your house. But I am saying challenge the behaviors that say we need more. Because that is being funneled through all of the advertisements out there. It's a a scarcity mindset. It's saying that, that you are scarce and you need to consume more to produce happiness. And that's not true at all. And so if you look at Jesus, he lived a simple life. Most of the followers of Jesus of the early text lived a simple life. So just go through your life and ask the question, what really matters? And start with your money and possessions and go through your house, apartment, and get rid of clutter and extra stuff. Sell it, give it away, bless people with it. Get rid of that DVD collection that you have because it means something, but it really is just taking up space and you're never gonna watch a DVD ever again. <laughs> then move on to activities that are not helpful and, and think about the ways you're, you're, you're just accumulating things and get down your life to the things that matter most. I believe that will be really powerful for families, by the way. Families to do this together. We just recently did that with Ezra's toys. He's, he has a birthday in November. He got all sorts of stuff. And his closet's full of toys. So we got rid of over 50% of his toys. Joyfully, he did, because he was giving them away to other kids. Um, but I think that's part of the practice is training him. Like, hey, when you get something, you should give away. We don't need extra things. Um, and, and I'm not saying he only has two toys. He has so many toys. Um, but we do keep kind of moving the target forward and simplifying. I, I just think you should do that as well. And lastly, this is the most hardest thing I've done so far. I've fasted for a week before. I have done, <clears throat> I've given up all sorts of food. I've done crazy diets because of wanting to pursue Jesus. I've traveled the world serving the poor. The hardest thing I've ever done is slow down my overall pace of life. <clears throat> this has become a new game I'm playing. And I'm looking for little ways to slow down. And there are no rules, but here are the rules I want to invite you. Anyone struggling with hurry sickness? Okay, raise your hand proud. Okay, you're in a good, safe place. You've all been corrupted by the empire. Um, Just kidding. Not the empire from Star Wars, the empire of American culture. Here's what I've been doing. Uh, Slowing down. Here's ten things, or a bunch of things that I've been trying to do, and I'm getting called out by my friends, which sucks. Drive the speed limit. Come to a full stop at the stop sign. Get into the slow lane and stay there. <clears throat> it's literally like this, yeah, that's a whole, uh, I can't even tell you. Show up early to an appointment and don't get on your phone or get in a line and don't use your phone. Try it. Revolution of Jesus by not getting on your phone. Um, walk slower. Get into the longest checkout line. Oh! Like, I, I have been like, I have been groomed for efficiency. Like, I can calculate. I'm literally, I kid you not, I'm, I'm like, I was at Trader Joe's yesterday in a hurry, trying to get, because my wife burned the meat, and we had people coming over, and we needed more Euro meat. So we went to Trader Joe's. I'm like, oh, I gotta practice this. Okay, so I get in the long line. But then I'm just calculating. I'm like, I bet you three people will get past me. I'm like literally playing again, like, as this discipline. But I'm really good at knowing how efficient it is on the freeway everywhere because I've been groomed for hurry. 
Um, don't turn your smartphone into a dumb phone. So I don't have emails on my phone. Uh, I don't have, I have restrictions for websites, so I can't get on social media, I'm off social media right now. Restrictions for uh, access to various things that, I'll, that will become infinity. So I have to limit how much time I spend on my news app because that has become like the new scroll for me. The new face, I don't Facebook right now or, or any social media, but it's like the, the thing that I'll, I find a way to escape and it's through the news. Which is like, that's just because I've created these habits. And uh, is this helpful? Start a journal. Eat slower and chew food slower. This is literally like, like this, this is like the weirdest one because I eat really fast. And I, now I'm trying to slow down. And my wife keeps going, do you not like it? <laughs> baby, baby, I'm trying to slow down. Okay, it's great. I promise. This is, and the hardest one has been speaking slowly. I've tried even today to speak slower than I normally speak on purpose, um, but also in conversations, letting other people finish their complete sentences and waiting before I speak. So as I'm telling these things to Alex last night in bed, I interrupt her and she says, didn't you say you were gonna let people finish? <laughs> so I'm a work in progress. And I hope you will also become a work in progress because the great threat to our spirituality um, is going to come through busyness and hurry. And I think as followers of Jesus, we should or we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.